This episode and every episode is brought to you by Progress, the makers of Telerik.net and Kendo UI JavaScript components and controls, helping you easily build modern, high-performant web, mobile, desktop apps, and even chatbots. If you enjoy the show, please check us out at Telerik.com and see what we have to offer. So, so it's uh, interesting when people ask me, what do cloud developer advocates do? Uh, sometimes I hear people answer with the, uh, the side effect of, of not what our focus is, but the benefits that come with it, things like travel and conferences. But the reality is uh, I think of it as, as three C's. That's really easy to remember, really easy to explain. And the C's are community, content, and connection. And when I talk about that, community is really about meeting developers where they're at. And that can be online. That may mean going out to user groups, to conferences. It might mean contributing to open source projects. But really, a big part of what we do is get out to where developers are at and try to remove roadblocks, take feedback back to to product teams. And that's really where the connection piece comes into play is we connect with the engineering teams at Microsoft and I'll bring back issues that I find in the field, but also uh, reverse that and talk to product teams about new changes that are coming out and work to get examples and uh, you know articles, documentation around that, which that links into the content piece, which is producing content, curating content, finding ways to get what developers need to be successful with what they're doing. And then obviously, as a cloud developer advocate, the focus is on cloud-based computing. Yeah, we share similar roles. So this is all very familiar territory to me. Uh, but I'm glad you were able to clear that up for listeners. I, I think there was like a Twitter discussion a few months back that was like somebody was just poking at the uh, the developer advocacy role because they didn't quite understand it and trying to, I don't know, not trying to give it a bad name, but indirectly giving it a bad name because they didn't quite get what we did. 
Yeah, there's there's a, a lot of confusion, I think, uh, around that and a lot of discussion. And, and of course, your mileage may vary. Different companies approach it in, in different ways. Uh, I was very excited about this team simply because the way it was built was by hiring veterans and engineers. And by that, I mean pretty much everyone on the team had a role delivering software or uh conducting operations. We have an ops side to things as well. So they have hands-on experience in applications, in uh, deploying infrastructure, and are basically leveraging that to uh, you know, pursue those three Cs that I was talking about, as opposed to, for example, something you might think of a traditional marketing side where someone's coming in to put a marketing spin on things and doesn't have that, that direct experience. So it, it is nuanced and it does change, but you know, most of the people that I run into who are in developer relations are, are not only very uh, knowledgeable about the areas they're in, but passionate about making developers' lives easier, which is what I love about it. Yeah, and you've got the experience to back it up. Like you said, you've been in the industry quite a while. You've seen multiple ends of it, so it sounds like a good fit for you. That's right, and I can uh, talk COBOL with the best of them. <laughs> yeah, we we both uh, we both do a lot of web development. We um, have invested quite a bit of time in web technologies and we're we're pretty excited about something on the horizon called WebAssembly. So why don't we talk a little bit about that next? Absolutely. It's what WebAssembly is interesting to me because I feel like my entire career we've as developers tried to kind of invent this notion of we want to write write code once and have it run everywhere. And you've seen that come out in platforms and languages like Java. You know, the whole dream of Java was to have it run on every device and have one code base that you could do that. The .NET framework, C-sharp, what we work with, the idea behind that is to have a intermediate language that then can be translated to different platforms. So again, we can write that. And it, it was kind of funny because I was uh, going through just um, some nostalgia looking at some old Commodore 64 programs. And there is a game that I, I spent an entire summer playing when this was when I was a, a young teenager. And it was called Zork. And it was basically a text-based adventure game. You'd walk around and do things. But what's interesting about Zork is the company that produced it called Infocom was uh, created by some graduates of MIT and they had a game running on a mainframe and they decided to bring it out to the market. And at the time, the market was extremely fragmented. We had, you know, TRS-80, we had Commodore 64, we had Apple, we had Spectrum. There were a lot of different devices that had different operating systems and runtimes. And so what Infocom came up with was this idea of creating a specification for what they called a Z machine. And this was a, a hypothetical machine that could create text adventure games. And it had its own stack, its own way of me addressing memory, et cetera. And so the first thing they did was they implemented the Z machine for all the computers that they were going to sell to. 
And then the second thing they did was started building games to the Z machine. And from that point on, for the several hundred titles that they had, they only had to write that game once and it would run on every platform that the Z machine had been developed to. And I see WebAssembly as being sort of that Z machine for the browser. It's this concept of having a binary code format that the browser itself can optimize and get as close to native code as as possible. But there's a unified way of writing to that format. And then you can take a few steps back and start looking at different languages and realize that you can compile them to that binary format. So in essence, we can take C Sharp, we can take C, C++, Rust, Go, and there's several other languages that will compile to this binary format that's ubiquitous across browsers and even mobile phones now support it. In fact, it's in a 1.0 release and, and has a, a lot of changes coming down the pipe, but it's it's becoming mature quickly, I think. Yeah, I think one thing developers need to realize is that this is a web standard technology. It's not some plugin that's kind of like shoehorned in on top of uh, one of the browsers. You know, you don't have to install something to run WebAssembly. It's it's there. It's just as native as CSS or JavaScript. It, it is, and it's uh, in- incredibly powerful. And I think there's a, a few use cases to, to look at with that. Um, you know, I was exposed to it probably the same way you were through a technology called Blazor. And um, uh, I'll circle around to Blazor in a second because Blazor is a very interesting approach. One of the ways that WebAssembly shines is you can create something that's maybe compute intensive that normally would take a lot of cycles for JavaScript to run in a browser. And you can compile that to WebAssembly and see performance gains from that compute-intensive code. So maybe uh, you're doing something like encrypting a payload in the the browser before you send it on on its way. So there's an idea of taking a piece of code, optimizing it, and then the way WebAssembly works is you have a hook into it. It's like an API call for JavaScript. So you make an API call and it calls into WebAssembly and then it can call back. What Blazor did was took an approach of really providing an entire development platform, which is something I think in the history of .NET, we've always been as .NET developers excited about scaffolding and, and getting to a project quickly and having all the pieces there. And, you know, what's interesting about Blazor is it started out with the, this notion that with WebAssembly, we could take the mono version of .NET, which is a, a cross-platform open source version of .NET, and build it and compile it to WebAssembly. And then with the runtime in place, we can now create DLLs that run just perfectly fine on my Windows machine, on a Linux machine with .NET Core, and run those DLLs in, in the browser. And it opens up some pretty amazing scenarios. I know I was going through some libraries that I wrote probably 10 years ago in C Sharp that were always intended to run on the server and have been able to pull those in, turn them into a .NET standard class and reference them and execute them in the browser from Blazor, which is mind-blowing. 
Yeah, I've I've had similar experiences with it. Um, I think that's one of the really key selling points for me is the fact that it's compatible with existing code that we've already got either, like you said, in in repositories we haven't touched in a while, or even the gigantic ecosystem that is NuGet. There's tons of stuff out there on NuGet that's that we've used in, you know, Xamarin applications, desktop apps, uh, server side, you know, on the on MVC, and now we can tap into that stuff directly on the client as well. Um, I've I've got a couple of good examples of that. I created a um, markdown editor in the browser that runs completely client side. I didn't write the markdown parser. I just went out to NuGet and grabbed one that already existed. Um, fluent assertions is another one. So you can do validation or sorry, fluent validation, not fluent assertion. Fluent validation is a package that does uh, validation and people mainly use that for uh, server side MVC. And it has some extensions that, that kind of like create some JavaScript stuff. You don't even need those extensions anymore. You can just run what you used to run on the server right on the client and it works. So there's some pretty cool stuff out there that, that already exists. You can just yank into your project through NuGet and start hacking away. And I think this is the culmination of, of a lot of lessons learned over time. I remember, you know, when we started developing with .NET, the way you shared code was by literally creating a virtual link to a file. And so you shared the file and source and compiled it. You ended up with two different libraries, but they were built from the same code and we were happy. And then we had the portable class library and so on and so forth. Now we have .NET standard which is a way of creating a DLL that's shareable across any platform that implements the standard. And so with Blazor implementing that, you get that true ability to share the exact same code on the server and the client. And this is not a even a recompiled target. That same DLL will run as is. And then on top of that, you know, C-sharp developers who want to build web app experiences have found, and, you know, we, we both have run into this for sure, that you have to learn the web landscape. You have to learn JavaScript. You have to understand HTML5, CSS, et cetera, to be successful. And Blazor doesn't make that go away, but it takes that JavaScript piece and allows you to truly use C-sharp to build code. I know just the uh, sample app when you do file new Blazor has a example of fetching data from the server and it's using the HTTP client. This is the same client anyone would use in a console app or even for some server-side work on a, a different type of application. But that same client is available in Blazor. And so the syntax for asynchronously fetching data, loading it into a list and displaying it is exactly the same in this experience as it would be on a server-side MVC app or some other type of WPF or even WinForms application. And one one of my favorites is available right out of the box, and that's Link. So you can query your data, whether it's objects or if you're running Razor components, you can even query the database using Link. Um, and you know, JavaScript has those things now that in the language, like you know, ES6 kind of brought on some of that functional programming type of stuff, you know, with map, reduce, and filter. But you know we've had Link in C Sharp for quite a while, and it's it's something that's almost second nature now. Uh, so while it's nice to see those things in JavaScript, it's even nicer to go just be able to use the same syntax across the board, whether you're working on the server or the client. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting too to see how the entire infrastructure that they built up to enable this idea of Blazor components is now being extended to the server side and becoming a new way of doing components on server side as well. In fact, I haven't done much with server side Blazor, but just from reading the release notes from the latest version, it looks like you can take a server side app which for those who aren't familiar with that, there's a, a version of, of Blazor that basically creates a client and it uses SignalR to talk in real time to the server. And so as users are responding to events, those are marshaled to the server and re-rendered. Sounds inefficient, but in testing, it actually scales quite well. But more importantly, that can be done for a development lifecycle. It uses the exact same syntax that you would use for components and client side, you can then take that project and convert it to a client side project and have it run completely inside of the client if you want. So there's a lot of flexibility, a lot of boundaries being being pushed by this. Yeah, and the, the latest uh, release has um, some previews for what's coming up in the roadmap. Uh, what's happening is that that uh, server-side model, the Razor Components model, is actually filtering back into MVC as well. So you'll be able to reuse these new components um, in pre-existing applications like an MVC page or even a Razor page. uh, And you can, um, ahead of time, compile and render these views. And uh, in the future, what we expect to see is uh, if you're running a, you know, on the server, this, this page can spin up and start that SignalR connection in, uh, in an MVC context and be able to uh, run in MVC on the server side. And you can also instruct it to render on the client side. So if you want to spin this thing up, you know, you have this MVC page you hit um, and it starts up the, uh, or it feeds it the, the, what it needs for WebAssembly to execute that page. So that's stuff that's, you know, kind of future in the roadmap, but we're starting to see early previews of it filtering in um, the ASP.NET 3.0 preview 2 release that's out there. It's pretty, pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it's uh, amazing. And it's interesting to see even where, WebAssembly is going in general because I see more and more companies looking at it as a universal language to speak. And so there's there's even looking at, you know, how do things like uh, cloud-based computing operations maybe use WebAssembly as a target without requiring a browser, just have a runtime that that runtime executes WebAssembly. And then you can use existing tool chains to build experiences and, and deploy. So th- there's a, a lot to it and it's almost two separate threads, right? What's happening with WebAssembly and what the potential is there versus how Blazor's iterating and the experiences. But I took, um, you know, so from my history, I started out, I've, I've been in web since the beginning. I started out using something that many listeners may not even be familiar with, which is a VB and Complus packages to create website experiences, which was uh, a, a interesting nightmare in and of itself, but we, we got it done. Then I was <laughs> a, a Silverlight fan, used WPF, uh, got into XAML, data binding, things of that nature. Then really moved when 
it was obvious that Silverlight wasn't going to run on every device, I moved to Angular mainly because of the patterns that Angular supports. It allows you to use, I, I love the model view, view model pattern, MVVM, and Angular does that well. So conceptually, it was easy to make that jump from XAML data binding to corollaries and Angular, things like pipes and components and, and data binding. So, so I did that now kind of coming full circle to Blazor. I took a Angular app that I wrote to teach Angular back in the day. I actually committed multiple steps of building this health app because I wanted multiple inputs, things like height, weight, age, and then multiple outputs. It computes BMI, target heart rate, some other things like that. So it's a useful app to show how data binding and data propagates basically in the client and rewrote it in Blazor and was pretty amazed at how quickly I was able to get it up and running. And it looks exactly like the Angular app because at the end of the day, what it's rendering is still HTML and CSS. So I use the same styles, but the logic written completely in C sharp and using some of the patterns, like we have interfaces built into the framework, like I property change or I notify property change for a reason. These are useful and a lot of libraries know how to interact with them. So to be able to pull that into client side development is extremely powerful. Yeah, and just out of full clarity, too, um, when when I asked you to come on the show, uh, I let you choose the topic, and uh, just so happens you gra you gravitated to something that I've been kind of advocating pretty hard for the last year, <laughs> um, because I'm working on uh, a product at Telerik called the Telerik UI for Blazor, which we just shipped our second release last week. Uh, to get up to date and compatible with the latest release of Blazor, so we have a, f um, a couple components out uh, for uh, those frameworks: the Blazor framework and Razor Components framework. So you can use data grids and things like that. But that's you know something I've been working heavily on for a while, and I have a Twitch stream that I do every Friday uh, at noon Eastern Standard Time. And um, when you when you said you wanted to talk about, it, I sure wasn't going to uh, push back any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, it's funny. I've been following the uh, the components that go with it, and I kind of have a, a joke that you know a UI technology is mature when it gets a, a data grid component, right? So, so that's uh, a uh, a uh, validation of Blazor. But for me, it's interesting because when it was first announced, I'm going to be totally transparent. I was completely skeptical. And had the same reaction a lot of people did. Do we really need another way to, to tackle this, this problem of delivering web apps? And I sort of resisted it and didn't look at it for a while. But what happened was, as I went to user groups and conferences and events and just talked to people online, I saw this massive momentum and surge of excitement and interest and realized this is something that, you know, especially .NET developers have wanted and desired for a long time. So I said, oh, maybe I should give it a serious look. And then I wrote my first sort of experimental, let me kick the tires application. And it was just so straightforward and easy that uh, I was I was sucked into it. And there's a, a long ways to go before we can, you know, call this something that's production ready. So there's um, some, some problems to solve, but even now, the amount of functionality you can build and the things you can accomplish are just in incredible. 
And if uh, anyone's listening who has sort of written it off in the back of their mind as a, another trend, you know, I suggest you you go do file new experiment with a, a few apps and, and take a look at it because it, it may change your your perspective on things. Yeah, I, I think you're you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. It's the learning curve that really really catches you and and pulls you in. Um, there's, you know, as a .dot .net developer, especially because there's not a bunch of uh, tooling that you're not used to. It's all stuff that you've seen before. Um, you know, not trying to disparage JavaScript at all, but there, there seems to be a new tool of the week to do compiling or package management or uh, one of those type of things. And the build pipelines for those applications can get pretty crazy pretty quick. Uh, and with Blazor, you're using .NET across full stack, so it's kind of one tool does it all. And especially if you're in Visual Studio, I mean, you've got full IntelliSense and integrated build processes and everything just right there at your fingertips. You don't have to worry about Webpack and NPM and all that stuff. That is correct. I mean, it was funny. My first impression when I ported that Angular application to Blazor and got it up and running was... Well, I've really been kidding myself because for years I was telling myself how, you know, Angular really makes it easy and straightforward. And this is not bashing on, on Angular because it has allowed web applications to grow leaps and bounds along with React and Vue and some of the other frameworks. But to get back to what I've been doing for several decades, which is C Sharp, .NET development, to be able to use familiar tools and, and, um, you know, languages and everything else was was pr pretty exciting. And I can see that, you know, if the problems like, uh, you know, how much is sent over the wire, things like uh, obfuscation or at least managing the DLLs that are loaded into the browser, things like advanced debugging, uh, I have every confidence that those will be solved. And once they are, I think this is going to be huge in, in the .NET landscape. But I think uh, it'll be interesting to see if people outside of the .NET ecosystem are drawn to it as well, because there's a lot of WebAssembly options there. And uh, some people like this, that they're not opinionated. They're just compiling pieces of code. Blazor's opinionated. It gives you an entire framework for how components are encapsulated, how they communicate with each other, how they're rendered. But having those opinions in place means you can stand something up pretty quickly. Yeah, and from my experience with it, the, the these opinions that that are there are very well thought out, and they seem to do the job very well. So I, I think we'll see some success on that front. Um, so we we don't burn up an entire show talking just about Blazor. I could easily do that. Uh, I know you had some serverless technologies that you've been interested in lately, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about those. Yeah, it's actually a, a nice segue because I have a single page application that I use in my own work that I wrote. And um, it's it's been a learning mechanism for me. Basically, uh, one of the pieces of, of developer relations is content. And when we're curating content and sending people to content, we obviously want to understand, are we being successful? Is anyone interested? So then you come into link tracking and, and tagging links, et cetera. 
And I wanted to make a way because I use several different social media platforms. I'm, I'm very heavy on, on Twitter, but I also use Facebook and LinkedIn and some other mediums as well. And I wanted to make it really easy to take a link and, and package it up and then be able to track data around it so that, you know, just because I think something's interesting doesn't mean people who I'm sharing the information with feel the same way. And so to be able to draw on that information and aggregate data. So I built a link shortener and the front end is a really simple single page application. I say this is a nice segue because it's written in Vue.js right now. And to me, I've, I've not had as much experience with React, but between Angular and Vue, for a large enterprise app, very comfortable with Angular. I've, I've been there and done that. But Vue for getting something small and off the ground as quickly as possible is uh, definitely something that, that I, I go to for that. And I, I was thinking about, you know, I want to do some enhancements to this uh this application that I'm using right now, it's just paste in a link and get the short links back. I'd love to do things like have some real-time monitoring of what links are being clicked and, and see them on the console. And I'm like, you know what? That'd be a great Blazor app. So anyway, that's my segue is that I'm going to look <laughs> at, at writing the front end piece of that in a Blazor app. But, you know, writing the, the link shortener, it's something that I wrote on my own because I'm not just encapsulating Microsoft links. I'm linking to other people's blogs and properties and URLs. So I wanted to do this on my own and own it and be able to use it. And like everyone else, I'm on sort of a limited budget. So what I was looking at was how can I make this as cost effective as possible and as easy to maintain as a one-person show as possible. And so what I ended up with was an application that basically uses completely serverless components. There's a storage piece to it, which uh, storage is just incredibly inexpensive and can handle some, some basic database needs as well. There's something called table storage that's a key value store that is perfect when you think of mapping a short link to a long URL. That's the, the use case for it, if you will. And then it uses something called Azure Functions, which is a, a serverless platform for executing code. And what's really neat about functions is I, I kind of look at this as the culmination of where cloud has evolved from, from many years ago. You know, I'm old enough to remember taking physical servers, setting them up, configuring them, installing the operating system, installing the web server, configuring the web server. There was a lot of effort that went into that. And virtualization helped a lot with that virtual machines. And then, of course, you know, Microsoft with Azure very early on provided platform as a service. The problem is originally when that was provided, it was more locked into the .NET ecosystem. And so that isolated a lot of people using other languages and, and platforms. Well, with uh, serverless, you write your code and your code does one thing and it does it well. So you could almost look at it like a, a microservice, although I don't want to get into all the semantics and nuances of what's proper or not with that. But the idea is that I have a piece of code and then I have two helpers. I have a trigger, which is what makes the code run. And I feel like we overuse this example of a HTTP trigger. So I access a, a URL endpoint 
and it causes my, my code to run because there's other triggers I can trigger based off a file being uploaded. I can trigger based on a timer if I have a job that runs on a regular basis. But basically, I was able to break down, okay, so what I want to do is I want to have a function that takes a URL, returns a short URL. So I can write that piece of code and trigger it by an HTTP call. And then I need another piece of code that's the corollary to that, that allows someone to enter a short link and redirects them to the long link. So it looks up, okay, what URL matches this, redirects them. Now, I also want to capture data about that but I want to do it as quickly as possible. In other words, I don't want someone to click on a link and have to wait 10 minutes for it to redirect. So what I do is I put that click on a queue and redirect the user immediately. And then I have another piece of code that's triggered by an item being on that queue and it gets called and then it can go out and store metadata. You know, this is what page it was pointing to and, and everything else. And then it stores that in, in a uh, NoSQL database. And what was really interesting to me as I, I went through this is I started building this out and realizing that I don't have to configure a web server. I don't have to deal with a virtual machine. And I don't have to worry about scale because the way that it's set up is it scales automatically. And I actually have uh, some demos that I show people where I start to place load on and call these links over and over, and you can see it automatically spin up new processes to handle the load and, and scale it. So that's uh, something that that's pretty exciting to me is is the potential of, of serverless and the fact that on top of the ease of development and the ease of deployment, you know, I don't have to worry about servers. It's not no servers; it's just less servers. It's also micro build. So the total cost to me, because I get 1 million calls for free a month and I'm, I'm just not that popular. I don't have <laughs> millions and millions of links. I have hundreds of thousands. It becomes pennies for me to do the compute side of things, even the data side with uh, redundant storage. And this, it just blows my mind because I, as directing an IT department, went through setting up geo-replicated SQL clusters and how we had to, I didn't personally do it. I had to manage the resources who knew way more than I did about things like um, IP peering and having data center failovers and co-locating and log shipping and everything that goes with that. And it was so monumental. And so to be able to set up storage and check a box and have it redundant across regions is, is pretty powerful knowing if one goes down, the other stays up. So because of that experience, I, I just started to focus a lot more on serverless technologies and what serverless can do. And that's been an area that I've, you know, spoken with a lot of customers about, worked with a, a lot of the product team to see where it's going. And it's just been something that I'm passionate about. And there's another aspect to it too, because there's there's actually four components of our platform that are serverless. One of them, I know the least about API management. It's a pretty powerful tool set. It can do things like take old APIs, transform them, transform them to new REST-based APIs. It can put, put authentication in front of an API that wasn't written to have authentication. So there's a lot of magic there, but the three that I, I use the most are, are functions, which is the code I run, 
There's an event grid, which is a messaging system. And then there's something called logic apps, which are, are for integrations, which I use it to integrate with Twitter so that I can get information about which tweets specifically are being clicked on the most through my, my data set. Yeah, one thing that's nice about this um, URL shortening app that you've created is you've bundled it all up and put it in a nice, uh, easy to recreate package. So if people want to go out there and try this uh, this serverless or, or low low server impact um, URL shortener and, and tracker, uh, they can actually go out and build that. I know I've actually done it myself. Yeah, I was uh, surprised. I think I have something like 40 forks the last time I, I looked of, of people uh, forking it and, and creating their own shortener out of it. So I definitely tried to do everything that I can do open source in, in open source. And what's nice with um, cloud is, and, and this is, I'm obviously speaking Azure because that's what I work with day in and day out, but all the major cloud providers have fundamentally ways of, of basically describing the infrastructure you need. So it's really nice to be able to create a metadata file that basically says, here's the containers that execute the code, point it to the code that actually needs to run, and then have a single button that can set up all those assets, deploy the code, and have a functional app up and running within seconds or minutes, whatever it may be. Yeah, one thing I like about having folks like yourself on the show is the fact that there are reading materials that you've put together that people can go out and look at after they've heard about these things on the show. And they can also go out and find bits that they can either uh, use source code from or directly deploy. Um, and I'll make sure that I grab those things from you and, and put them in the show notes for everybody. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll share those. That's an exciting thing for me. You know, there's two things that I've been passionate about my entire career. One is writing and one is writing code. And um, the, those are two that I decided that I, I never want to get away from, even if I, you know, became a, a manager and not an individual contributor. I'd still want to write and I'd still want to write code. And I do a lot of speaking as well. And I, I enjoy speaking, but speaking um, speaking is more effort. I'm going to say that than, <laughs> than writing. Writing, I can grab my cup of coffee, kind of get in the the corner, collect my thoughts, and and drive through that. Same thing with code. You know, the first time I wrote a piece of code was when I was seven years old, and I still remember I was just typing it in from a manual on a TI ninety nine for a home computer. And when I got done and I typed run, it was in the basic language, a little pixelated figure danced across the screen. And I just thought about that for a second and realized I made that. And so to me, writing code is this creative process of having an idea, making it work. That's why I love this link shortener. It was literally an idea. I wanted to do this, this and this. Now let me go back. And instead of doing what I'm familiar with, you know, I'm going to spin up a, a ASP.NET MVC application with a SQL backend, and that's the end of it. I said, let me do some research and figure out the, the best way, the best tool for the job. And that ended up being multiple tools that fit together. And then I do what makes sense to me is I write about that process. So I wrote about 
putting the tool together. I wrote about how I built the integration to get the Twitter information. I wrote about standing up my Power BI dashboard. So all of these aspects are, are leveraged in the sense that I can figure them out and, and solve them, but then I can write about them and share them and hopefully connect with other developers so they find new resources and ways to make their life easier. Because that's at the end of the day, I just want things to be easy and I want them to be inexpensive. <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> I'll be interested in seeing uh, how you apply these things to Blazor in the future. So uh, what serverless technologies and event grid type things can we attach to uh, Blazor front end and run on the client side and connect to you know, serverless backends and, and whatnot? Well, what's, what's nice about the way applications work, I think anyone, regardless of what framework they use, when, when you're working with a single page application, it's pretty much a, a mature given model now that there's a set of static resources, that's web page templates, CSS files, images, JavaScript, that set of static assets that get served. And then the dynamic aspect is a, a, some sort of API or backend. We get data, we transform it, render it in the client and present it. And to be able to take all of those pieces and stand them up, you know, for example, with storage, you can use a storage account to provide a static website. So I can upload my assets into a storage account, expose it as a web endpoint and have a web server serve those, put it behind a content delivery network. And then I have massive scale for my static assets. And then I have different options for my backend. And what's really wonderful to see with all of the major cloud providers is their services that whether it's just um, platform as a service, managed code, serverless, they're embracing the idea of come as you are, right? So serverless, you know, I use C Sharp quite a bit, but if you want to write an Azure function in Java, or if you want to write it in uh, JavaScript using Node, you can do that. And, and all of these assets are available to, to build that. So you might have a Blazor front end that turns out to be just a set of assets on a static website that talks to a back end that may have been written by the Node.js team in a, a company, and that's fine. And it can be completely you know mixed topology like that and still be successful and, and run well. And that's where you know services like EventGrid, I think that's a service that we have that's probably one of the least known services. I, I find a lot of people just aren't familiar with it and haven't used it, but the concept is pretty straightforward. It's a pub sub, right? So I can publish information and then I can subscribe and receive information. And that's a, a way to decouple components within the enterprise. And we've got a tour that we're on the road giving. I think you went to one of them uh, recently was it London, the Microsoft Ignite, the tour? Um, I didn't go to Ignite. I went to NDC London recently. Okay. Okay. I know. Uh, I think your company had some presence at one of the. Uh, yeah, that was uh, Sarah and I'm trying to remember who else went. Sarah and Sam possibly uh, were at the Connect event out there. That that event was pretty unique because we wanted to change the way typical presentations are, are given. And we came up with this concept of learning paths. And that's taking a concept and having multiple sessions that build on that concept. So, for example, there's a track 
for uh, doing uh, cloud apps. And in that track, there's a session on building resilient applications. So how do you manage security and secrets? How do you scale? How do you handle failover? How do you get data closer to the customer? You know, all these important aspects that you need to consider when you're building a, a global application. And then I did a session that focused on, on serverless. And the idea is we have a, a product inventory system. And I may get information about a new product item coming in. And I may just get that product code. And then I have to go look up in another system or find out what the pricing is. I may get my images from another catalog. So there's a lot going on. Well, the concept of EventGrid is that as business events happen, you raise those events. So SKU was created, um, price was set, image was uploaded. Then you can have subscriptions. And unlike some other systems where you have to pull and you have to keep asking, hey, do you have a new message for me? The way this is designed is it pushes the message as it comes in. So if I raise that event that says a SKU is added, then a subscription will route that event and post it to an endpoint immediately as that message comes in. And I can have endpoints in Azure that understand how to receive these messages. But I can also just have a webhook that may be in a completely different cloud provider that picks up that message. So now I can do things like my initial legacy application is doing what it does and just raises some events. And then I might decide, you know, it'd be nice if a new SKU came in, if I could notify the head of operations so that they make sure all the other things that need to get done are, are handled. So I can create an integration workflow, a logic app that listens for that one event. And when that event comes through, it interfaces with Office 365 and sends an email to a distribution list. And then I might say, well, it'd be nice if I had an image, if I could go ahead and use some computer automation, some machine learning to inspect the image and describe the image until I can get a more you know, human verified description. And so I can create a workflow that listens to that event, talks to our computer vision API that looks at the image and comes up with a caption and caption it. And I can do all these in parallel independently. And really the, the common unit is that I'm receiving a message. So it's very simple in design. It's just, there's a payload that has information in it, but very powerful in how you can implement it and use it. And again, you know, I talk about examples with the cloud provider I'm most used to, but this can easily be used to orchestrate actions that happen in completely other environments. In fact, there's even an example, a demo that shows how to use a, a gateway, a secured gateway to kick off a store procedure on a SQL server that's locked down in someone's data center. So there's just a, a lot of opportunity and options. And what I find when I go out and talk to people is not that people necessarily are resisting new capabilities. They're just not aware they're there. And so that's what I'm very passionate about is showing the way applications can come together and use these building blocks to make something that is very easy, rapid to develop, but still get scale. For example, the way Eventgrid works is it has service level agreements, uh, guarantees around message delivery, but you only pay for what you use. So if I'm not sending any events, I'm not paying anything. If I'm sending 100,000 events, I, I pay for that, but it scales automatically to meet demand, which is nice, especially uh, if you think of something like retail, 
where you have different retail seasons. So you may have a steady state of turnover and then you have holidays or sales or other things that drive up activity instead of paying a fixed cost to have a set of servers sitting idly ready to receive that that new set of transactions you can have an architecture that scales to meet that demand without you know anyone sitting by pulling levers or pushing buttons and one thing that I love about being a software developer in 2018, 19 and moving forward is that we have all of these various tools that we can uh, put in our tool belt and, and make really cool apps. And we've got quite a few things at our disposal. You, you even mentioned machine learning in there, which is, is another technology that I geek out to frequently. Uh, so between you know WebAssembly and serverless computing and um, logic apps and, and event grid and all these cool things that we can tap into, uh, we really have quite an amazing set of tools in front of us. Um, so with that said, Jeremy, how do we keep up with all this stuff? Where can we follow you and the things you're writing about? Seems like you have a pretty good grasp on, <laughs> on some of these uh, awesome cloud-based tools that are out there. Uh, where can we find out more? I mean, there's there's a, a lot of resources. And when it comes to cloud development specifically and topics that I'm focused on, which, you know, right now, WebAssembly, Serverless, some of the others, my, my Twitter is a constant source. I'm, I'm actually... Um, it's something that I've been doing for several years now, and it, it segues nicely into what I'm formally supposed to do as a uh, developer advocate. But the first thing I do every day is I look at a set of feeds, and these are a combination of, of blog feeds, RSS, and um, even searches that I have set up. And I may have anywhere between 800 to 1,500 items to look at. And I, I go through those items. Obviously, it has to be some quick glances, but the ones that look interesting, I drill into. And I end up coming up with some days it's it's almost nothing. And some days it might be a dozen different articles that, that seem interesting in that space and that space being cloud, WebAssembly. Uh, these topics we've talked about on this call, and I, I tweet those out, but I also do the same thing on LinkedIn. And I also have a, a Facebook page dedicated to technology that I publish those. But, you know, I encourage people the way that I've been able to keep up to pace with the latest changes is to find other individuals like me at other companies and follow what they're doing and see what they're excited about and see what technologies they're looking at. And I do a combination of, of you know, reading and, and gaining insights into I'm a, a learner by doing. And so if something seems compelling enough, like when Blazor finally was on my radar so much that I couldn't ignore it, I just went out and built an app with it and said, let me figure this thing out <laughs> once and for all. And then the, the second step after that, uh, after creating a few apps is let's get something in production that I have to maintain. So that's why I'm motivated to rewrite my link shortener front end in Blazor so that I have to use it on a daily basis. And if there's catches, if you will, right, so some uh, read the fine print <laughs> to, to running it, I'll, I'll find that out on my own and be able to speak to that. But um, that, that's my, my advice to people. Do people learn in, in different ways. My way is really to, to follow trends on social media and then dig, dig deeper. We've also got you know, specifically for the technologies under my umbrella of Microsoft, there's a, a site called docs.microsoft.com 
that is all of our documentation. It's one of the largest GitHub projects, I believe, that that's out there because it's all open source markdown. Uh, if someone's unhappy with documentation, they can issue a pull request. But that's something that we focused on curating and, and making as in-depth and detailed as possible and hopefully provides the, the level of, of information people need to get going with different aspects. Yeah, there's some really fantastic people behind uh, the docs, and uh, we've had quite a few of them actually on the show to talk about what they work on individually. Uh, so the you know to promote their work again, it's been uh, some fantastic stuff they've put out over the last few years. So make sure you check them out. Uh, Jeremy, we'll put your links as well in the show notes. And I appreciate you making some time to talk to me on the show. It's always a pleasure, man. Thanks again for listening to Eat Sleep Code. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a like or a share from iTunes or SoundCloud. And visit us at Telerik.com.